Um, over the last couple of years, uh, I don't know if this has happened to you, uh, even within the last month, uh, I've had this reoccurring nightmare. I don't know if you guys ever have one nightmare that just kind of happens all the time. Everyone has nightmares or think they do. Uh, but you have this reoccurring nightmare that just keeps coming up. Uh, you know, usually for me, it's the, you know, the, the dark, very dark environment. Um, there's this creepy house on a hill, and there's the black and green uh, sky. It's all, and there's zombies everywhere, and you're shooting your way through them, and they come and they get you right at the end, and you wake up. That happened to you? I mean, that's very specific. <laughs> I don't know if that one specific one happened to you. Um, and that one has nothing to do with my illustration, but I just know that one happens a lot with me. Um, another one that has happened a lot with me, um, and it ha- has happened in the last month, which I still think is hilarious that I still have this nightmare. Uh, after leaving high school, after leaving college, after leaving seminary, I will still wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat thinking, oh, no. Oh, no, I didn't do my research paper. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, there's a test today. I didn't study at all. And I'm freaking out, like, oh, gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I have to, like, have my brain calm my heart down and say, like, Slim, it's cool. <laughs> you don't take tests anymore. <laughs> you don't do research papers anymore. <laughs> calm down. I have to, like, talk myself into it. And I don't know if that's just kind of revealing my own idol of needing that A that I had in school. I need that A. I need it. Um, but I think it's prudent uh, at a time like this. I think some of you guys are going through test taking right now, and maybe your second round of tests, or you're beginning to start going there. Uh, and for those of you like me who've been out of school for a while, or maybe for a long while, uh, I ask that you put yourselves in their shoes. Put yourself in the shoe that you're at your final exam. You're sitting at your desk, and you get the test in front of you, and the, the professor or the teacher says, don't open it yet. And do you feel that fear and that anxiety that, that's building right there? Did the professor put the questions I specifically studied for in here? Because <laughs> I'm only answering those questions. <laughs> oh, gosh. And I mean, I, I can remember opening up a test and going, and she, you know, professor says, okay, you may begin. And I open it up and I go, yes. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Kudos to you, professor. <laughs> Thank you. I studied it and you asked it. That's how it should work. <laughs> and you think, that, I love that. But then other times, most of the times, you, open, you get to that test and you open it up and you go, Oh, no, are you kidding me? Is this even English? When did this get covered? Oh, my gosh, I'm so mad right now. It's not even funny. I'm literally, not literally, this is literally killing me. <laughs> and if you think this, you know, this is just the first page, and so you're saying, okay, i got to slow down. I've got to take this test, and so I just, I'll we'll skip this page. We'll come back to it. I'll skip that page. That, that, that page is terrible, too. <laughs> and by the end of the exam, you're like, I've skipped 90% of the pages. I've got nothing. Oh, my life is over. It is over for now. You ever have that happen to you? Clearly, that never happened to me. Um, last week, I spoke to the Lorena football team for their FCA, and we've been doing kind of a series of the gospel according to, and we've been looking at different kind of sports figures um, being FCA. Uh, but two weeks ago, I did the gospel according to plagiarism. And that got people's attention. The gospel according to plagiarism. What is plagiarism? Plagiarism is just literally it's taking credit for something you didn't do. Right? I mean, a lot of times we think of plagiarism, we think of, uh, I didn't 
research paper. I think Wikipedia has something to say about this. <laughs> and we copy and paste Wikipedia in our research paper, and we're plagiarizing. Or, you know, I, my brother took this same class and did the same professor. I think I'll take his paper and just erase his name. Sorry, Tyler. Let's put Slim on there. And awesome grade. Uh, but plagiarism is literally just, it's just literally just taking credit for something you didn't do. And what Paul has been building for a while now and comes to its, its pinnacle in Romans 5 is he's saying that there is, there is good news, even though the, in plagiarism, there, even though the world rightly sees plagiarism as something to be abhorred and it's despicable and it's, it's, it, it's not good, Paul is going to say that there is good news in plagiarism. In Romans 5.19, he says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So by one man's obedience, we plagiarize and take credit for and if you put yourself back in the, into the, uh, the failed test room, and you're thinking of your test, and you're like, oh my gosh, I failed this. Uh, why did that teacher throw that curveball at us? Or why do I not just get calculus? Or why don't I not just get covalent bonds, just like I don't get righteousness? Um, I'm going to fail this exam. And what Jesus does is he takes your test, and he scratches off your name and writes his name on there. And he takes your test, and he walks it up to the front to the teacher to be graded to be judged. And you didn't get one question right. He clearly fails the exam. He takes the F for the semester for you. And so the good news of plagiarism is that Jesus plagiarized you and took your credit and turned it in. And that's kind of what we've been, we've been hammering for a while, but today we actually get the flip side of this argument that while Jesus took your shame and your unworthiness to be graded, it's done and it's, it's been paid out. Jesus has left his exam right next to yours. And he wrote your name on it. For you to pick up his exam and to plagiarize and to take his credit and to turn it in. And so I know there's probably, being Parents Weekend, there's probably many well-intentioned, uh, good parents here going, please don't preach this. <laughs> this is the worst advice my kid has who's actually struggled with plagiarism. Wait a second, you're, you're, are you teaching cheating? No, we're not teaching cheating. That's despicable and abhorred in every other realm besides the spiritual realm. But in the spiritual realm, I need to plagiarize. I need to take someone else's credit more than mine. You say, well, okay, well, I get that. But, you know, teaching this, that's just not helping the person. That's not helping them understand how to take the test. That's not helping them afterwards. Afterwards, they're going to be, we're going to have a generation of morons who don't understand how to take tests and how to study for them. They're going to be sinners forever. And that's the argument Paul has been arguing for since last week. He, he said, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound, that you can just take credit for it? And his answer was what? By no means. And it actually is not something appropriate for church that he actually says there. And he says, that's just ludicrous. This is ludicrous that you would even think. It's crazy talk. What, when we receive an act so life-changing as getting the credit for something we didn't do, it always breathes life. It breathes life to the sinner. And, and if it doesn't breathe life, it reveals that you didn't actually... Receive it in the first place. It reveals they were never Christian. I know this is a very long illustration. What this sermon is about, what this is building us up to, is that there is new life in you. That the gospel, which Paul talks about, is the, is the dynamite. It's the power to save you and also to move you is at work. And it's inside of you right now. And so please open up your Bibles to Romans 6. And we'll be looking at verses 8 through 14. And please stand for the reading of God's word. 
uh, Romans 6, verses 8 through 14. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Father, we come to you now and we do ask that your dynamite, your, your power in the gospel would actually be at work this morning. Father, that it would work on our hearts to ignite life from death to life. Jesus, we ask and we need that to happen. I need that to happen in my own life, to see myself being brought forth from death to life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're continuing the same train of thought. Uh, Paul began last week in Romans 6, uh, and you know, it was this twofold argument that if you know, Christ died, we die, and if Christ lives, we live. Um, and he took the shame and the guilt. But today, last week was kind of the emphasis on Christ's death, you know, the, the snake's head being cut off. This week's emphasis on Christ's resurrection. Verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And this is what pa- the pastors that many theologians actually uh, come to and look to when they want to discuss and talk about uh, this theological term called union with Christ. Uh, union with Christ is this term that I think many of us have heard and are just are aware of, but I don't think many of us actually understand or get. And this is something that we've actually looked at this summer with the youth group um, at our camps. Um, John Murray actually says that union with Christ is the central truth of which the whole doctrine of salvation stands. I mean, if you think about that, if that's true, like, the central truth of which your whole salvation stands, we barely understand. Could you explain union with Christ? It might be tough. We hardly ever talk about it, we hardly ever see it, but if it's the central truth, if it's the one that's actually going to bring about justification, sanctification, glorification, all these different things, I think we ought to, we ought to want that. To have union with Christ. I think one of the most helpful ways of talking about union with Christ um, is to be thinking about it this way. You guys ever use super glue? Super glue is, uh, it's fun to work with, right? No, no, no. Elmer's glue is fun to work with. <laughs> you can make a ball and whatever. Super glue is not fun to work with. Super glue, you think you did all your work great and neat, and you at once you had five fingers, but then all of a sudden you start realizing you have three fingers on each hand. You're like, I'm some type of alien. <laughs> My fingers won't come undone. Maybe I'm a Trekkie or something. And that's really what union with Christ is, um, not being a Trekkie. <laughs> Good one. All right, but union with Christ is essentially that we are so tightly bound to Jesus in such a way it's as if we are super glued to Jesus. Hand to hand, hands to hands, feet to feet, neck to neck. And so that we are 
tied to him. We are super glued to him so that wherever I go, he goes. Wherever he goes, I go. So when he dies, I die. When he raises, I am raised. And so that's why Paul can say in verse 8, we have died with Christ, this profound statement. And you can say, I haven't died yet. I don't think I have. But because I am so united to Christ by this unbreakable union, I've been so super glued to Christ that when Christ died, I can say that I died. And then the good news of superglue, the best news of superglue, is that not just that he died, but he comes back from the grave and so do we. And it's not just this future uh, resurrection we're talking about. We're talking about a resurrection now. So that when he rises from the dead, so do we. And so verse 9, uh, we see this as, you know, it's a superhero invincibility level that we're talking about here. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so now here's the truth of the matter. What Paul is trying to say here is, here's something that you cannot take away from who Christ is. This is who he is. You may not argue it. We know that Christ has risen from the dead. That is true of him. He has risen from the dead, and he can no longer die. Death no longer has dominion over him. Remember that word. It'll come up again. Death can't contain him. The stone was rolled away, and that's why Paul can say, Where, O death, is your sting? Death is done. This is why I love what uh, John Owen uh, has talked about. When Christ's resurrection happens, he killed death, and he titles his book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It's the death of death in the death of Christ. And what he's arguing is that death as a power, as a dominion, no longer exists because Christ has beat it ultimately. The death of death and the death of Christ. And then it moves us to what I believe is the heartbeat of this verse, or of this passage. I think the heartbeat of this passage is verse 11, uh, where the passage goes and grows and moves. Uh, It says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think this, there's just so much power in this passage that it, we could just take a whole sermon on just you know, looking at the majesty that's right in here. You know, first off, Paul continues the, the, the superglue, the, the connection, the union. He's saying, so you also, meaning if that's true of Christ, what's true of him is that he died. And if you're superglued to him, if you're united to him, you died too. And so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. It's true of you. Now, look what he's telling us to do. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He's telling us that we are considering ourselves the walking dead. I know some of y'all's favorite TV show, right? That in one body, you have someone who is dead and someone who is alive. That we are to be considered possibly walkers uh, or zombies. uh, And that we are dead in the same body and alive. The moment that we become Christians, that we die. We die completely to sin. To sin's reign. And then we are made alive in it. And so death no longer, the the body of death no longer has dominion over us. That's what Jeff argued for last week, that the snake's head is cut off. The victory is assured. You know, the march to Berlin is there. But what's that mean? What does it mean that we're dead to sin? It means we're no longer living in it. We don't live in sin. And you think of this this way, what does it mean to live in sin? I think it means to uh, swim in it. 
to breathe it, that have it be the soundtrack of our lives. So Paul is trying to say that you are no longer living in sin. You, if you've been brought from death to life, you are no longer living and swimming and breathing in that. And if you are, here are two signs that I think, it, that I think reveal that. That if you are living in sin, if that is the soundtrack of your life, you have become tolerant of sin. If you think about it, if you're yourself, or if you're, you're thinking about someone, that you become tolerant of sin, and that if a Christian actually is a Christian, and they know of their sin, there's many times you don't know that you're a sinner or have a particular sin, but if you know of your sin, and you're saying, eh, that's not a big deal, and you become tolerant of it, that reveals something deep in your heart. Because as Christians, if we see our sin, and we've been brought from death to life, he's saying there has to be a disgust with it. There has to be a grief towards it, uh, an abhorrence, uh, that I, I don't want that. Even though I may struggle with it, I don't want that. Sin no longer has dominion over me, has no longer has that power. Another way to think about to living, uh, what living in sin looks like, living in sin looks like also making zero progress with that sin. And that can be a kind of a controversial thing to say, because many of us have habitual sins, and we struggle with a sin, or many of them. And that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying if you have a struggle, then, it doesn't, then you're not a Christian. If you're making zero progress in it, what's that revealing is that there's no fire in the heart. What we want to say, what we, we talked about in our community group last week, is that we want there to be a fight. If there's a fight, that's good news. If there's a struggle, that's good news. If there's, a, if there's even a war, a, a war that you're losing, that's good news. It's when there's no fight and no struggle that reveals that you've already, you're under the dominion of sin. Okay? And so I think many of us have tolerated some sins for too long, and Paul says here, you're dead to it. But now here, I love this part. This is what I think is what just, it preaches here, that he says, now consider it. I mean, for like the last couple of, I mean, for the, the beginning of chapter six till now, he's saying, you're dead and alive, you're dead and alive, and he's, he's hammering it. But now he says, consider it. And it's the Greek word there, lagizomai, and it's another word here that you, you can be used to saying, reckon it. Count it, that you, are, you, you have this legally new status. Count yourselves dead to sin. Realize it, recognize it. You have a new identity, count it. And you ask, why would he say this? Because he's been saying the same thing for a while. Why would he now say, now consider it? Because this is precisely where you and I doubt. Without a doubt, this is what we doubt. We doubt that we've moved from death to life. I'm supposed to be dead to sin, Sure. I mean, if you're honest with yourself and you look at yourself, you're going, doesn't look like it. Or you say, I'm, I've been risen with Christ. This doesn't feel like the victorious Christian life to me. And so then we doubt. And what Paul is trying to say is that just because we've become calloused to the Spirit's transforming power here doesn't mean it's no less true. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who preached a lot longer in this series than we will, um, a long time ago, he, he looked at Romans here, and he used this illustration. He said, there is all the difference in the world between be, being given a position and realizing you're in that position. Take the case of the, those poor slaves in the United States of America about 100 years ago. 
They were in a condition of slavery, and then the Civil War came, and as the result of that war, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom, but many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds, not to say thousands, of times in their lives after their experiences, they they didn't realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and they began to tremble and to wonder whether they're going to be sold again. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones' point is here is that you can still be a slave experientially even if you're not one legally. You can still believe that you're under the, the, under the old master's reign when legally we've been freed. That we are in Christ, no longer in Adam. We are no longer the reign and the rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, it's just because I don't believe and realize who I actually am. And so what Paul does here is says, reckon it. Consider it. Reckon yourselves dead and alive. Believe the truth of the matter that your body and your mind is no longer under the power of sin. And so when we do sin, we're acting like slaves going to the old master saying, yes, master, what must I do? When that master has no power over you, we don't have to listen to it. We give the power to the the person that was just killed. We've just been freed from. Here's a fixed truth that I think is true, whether you agree with me or not. You will live what you believe. That you will live what you believe. And so if you believe yourself to be nothing but a beast, then we'll act like one. If you, if you believe yourself to be good for nothing, valueless, piece of trash, then that's what we act like. We say, that's just who I am. And Paul is saying, reckon it, consider it. That's not who you are. That's not who I've made you to be. And he gives us the good news of plagiarism and says, I've given you credit. (laughs) I've given you all the credit in the world. That's not who you are. And now we shift to a very, to sometimes an uncomfortable part of this passage because Paul has been arguing for us to believe the change and to reckon it. But then he now moves into the actual change of our behavior in verses 12 and 13. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Uh, This section is what we might call uh, sanctification. Uh, The sanctification is the, the process of being made holy or the process of becoming who we already are. Uh, And I think the church, the church, not any particular, the church has had a lot of problems in trying to teach this theology. I mean, we've, we've, we've had a lot of problems of just saying, you know, don't let sin reign in your body, you know, sh- shape up or ship out. And so I think sanctification can be this overbearing thing that's just focused on the outward behavior without ever actually looking at the inward motivations. And what we believe is in, in sanctification by faith. And that means that the real issue is not just telling me what to do. The real issue is getting me to want to do it. To actually want these things. And the real issue is also to empower me to do it. Can I do it? 
So do I want to, and can I do it? And Paul answers these questions both here and says, you've been set free and empowered, and what more motivation can I give you than the sacrificial love of Christ? I mean, seriously, there, there are some people who I know that I would follow to the grave. They're so motivational that there are things that I would never consider doing that I would do because I know them, I love them, I, I would follow them. Something I would never do, I would follow them. And if we think of sin as what it is, is that we are these, you know, these glory hogs, these glory pigs. You're eating and eating and eating glory and feed me glory, kind of the hungry, hungry hippo style. You know, feed me, love me, feed me life, feed me praise and attention. What would change me from saying, feed me and sucking all this glory in into now to actually give it away to someone else? What would actually change that motivation? That motivation has to be changed. What would change it but someone taking your test and bringing it forward and, and taking the fail for you? The one who loves you enough to give you all of his credit is the one who's going to change you. And I think for Paul and those who do see grace as radical as it is, they can get, a, they can get questioned as being licentious or antinomian, which means anti-law, meaning they don't actually want change in people because they're preaching grace and grace alone, as we just talked about. But Paul is clearly pushing for change. He's saying you can't avoid it. There has to be change. It's kind of like that classic Anne Lamott quote. It says, God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And I love it because it just it conveys both the beauty and the love and the heart of the gospel that God loves us just the way we are. But he also loves us too much to leave us in that way. There, there, the reign of sin has to come down. And we can't present our, our bodies as instruments for unrighteousness there. And over the course of history, I think uh, there, there have been different ways of looking at sanctification. We're not going to do a whole seminar on sanctification right now. Um, but very quickly, I think one of the, f- the four different ways I want to look at it is the first way is that God works because we work. And that's kind of the, the initiators. God works only because we started the work. And so that God is kind of in this response stage, like, okay, you started it, um, and the onus is really on us to do the work. There's another one that says it's more of the cooperators, that God works and we work. You know, the, the playing field is level. Uh, it just doesn't feel as oppressive as the first one. Together we accomplish that goal. Um, still sounds wrong, right? Uh, and then there's another one I think is tough. Is It's the receiver's one. God works when we don't work. Now, we believe that with God saving us by grace alone. But I think we can distort that theology and say we're just receiving of God's work. And so if God wants to change me, it's going to be him doing it. Don't even try to push me towards change. And we become uh, kind of paralyzed by this hyper grace and this hyper um, cheap grace. You know, it's in his time. And any talk of change is going to be looking like legalism. And I think... The last one, I believe, is what the reformers would talk about, and they, they call themselves you know, be, be more the, the responders. That because God works in us, we work. Because God has started the work, it moves us to respond. That we cannot stay still or silent when we see him taking our grade, our paper to be graded. When we look at the cross and see what he has done for us, we can't stay still or silent. And that change has to work in us. And that change produces a new identity in us from death to life. And when we become Christians, our sinful bodies die, spiritual life comes alive, that's a change of identity. 
And that's why Paul then says in verse 13, he goes on, he's saying, as he's telling us to change, he says, change as those who have been brought from death to life. Change as those. Be what you already are is the same thing we've been saying for a while now. Tim Keller says this, when a non-Christian sins, they're acting in accord with their identity. It's kind of like no biggie. that's, That's what they should do. Why wouldn't they say, but, but when someone who is united to Christ, everything changes because who they are changes. This is the new me. And when a Christian sins, they are acting against their identity. It's as if when we sin, we are, we are tearing apart our, our identity. As if we're tearing apart the superglue of being united to Christ. And that's why it's painful. That's why sin has this, these, these ramifications of being torn apart from who God's actually made us to be. And so what he's saying here is that I've, re- I've forgotten that of, of who I actually am. And so the message is kind of the same one from last week that we heard. Who are you? It comes back down to identity. I'll end with this. Rocky Five. He probably should stop making Rocky movies. There's a new one coming out. But Rocky has this moment at Rocky Five that is just powerful, whether you like Rocky or not. But Rocky is speaking to his son, who's now an adult man, but he's, he's speaking to him and he's saying, you know, at one point I used to hold you in my hand. I remember when I used to hold you in my hand and hold it to your mother and say, this kid's going to be the best kid in the world. This kid's going to be somebody better than anybody I ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful, and it was just great watching you. Every day was like a privilege. And then the time came for you to be your own man and take on the world, and you did. But somewhere along the line, you changed. You stopped being you. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And when things got hard, you started looking for something to blame like a big shadow. And let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward, that's how winning is done. And now if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that, and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what. No matter what happens, you're my son and you're my blood and you're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing yourself, you ain't going to have a life. And what Rocky does there is just beautiful. He doesn't shame his son for his sin. He doesn't, he doesn't throw him under the bus saying, how could you? He's reminding him of who he actually is. You stopped being you. You stopped being yourself. Know your worth because this isn't you. And I want us to hear that same message this morning. Paul is saying, you are not under law anymore. You're under grace. The law has been paid for and see how worthy you are. See how much I care for you, that I'm willing to die for you. Know that you were worth dying for on the cross by Jesus. He took the test for you up to the front. He took the fail. He gave you his righteousness that you can now take credit for. Consider it and count it and reckon it. Now be who I've died to make you to be is his his call today. You're not trash. You're priceless gold in his eyes. You're not beasts, and so stop acting like beasts. 
And so Paul encourages us this morning, God tells us this morning to consider and to reckon who he's made us to be. Let's pray.